You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Hey, my name is Matt Tolander. I'm the spiritual formation pastor on staff here at Midtown, which is an incredible privilege for me. And I'm really excited this morning. We're continuing our Psalms of Summer series. And this morning, we're going to talk about the most important psalm in the Bible. And I have my friend Stephen Floyd uh, to read it for us. So if you would, please, if you're able, uh, stand for the reading of our teaching text this morning. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. You're like, wait a minute, that wasn't Psalm 23. Show of hands, how many of y'all are familiar with Psalm 110? All right, pretty good, pretty good. Let me ask you this. Um, If someone came to you, like say like a non-Christian person, one of your non-Christian friends or something like that, if someone came to you and they asked you to explain like what is the message of the gospel, what is the heart of Christianity, but you can only use the Old Testament to explain it, could you do it? What passage would you go to? You can't use the Romans road, can't use John 3.16, can't use Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Which Old Testament passage would you go to to communicate the heart and the truth of the Christian faith and the Christian message uh, that we call the gospel? And this is the most transparent opener of all time, because when the early Christians did not have the New Testament yet, and they had to communicate to a world that needed to hear this gospel message, when they turned to Scripture, they turned repeatedly and overwhelmingly to Psalm 110. They, um, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. There's at least 20 different explicit references to it. Um, at Pentecost, when Peter preached the first sermon in the history of the church, he ended the sermon in Psalm 110. Uh, Paul references this text in some of his most important passages, including Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15, and Ephesians 1, and Colossians 3, and the entire book of Hebrews is based on this psalm. And all three gospel writers include an encounter in which Jesus makes a very strong, very forceful use of Psalm 110. And so I want to use one of those passages as a front door into the psalm. So let me set it up for us. So At the time of this story that we're about to jump into, this interaction, what's going on is that the Judeans had been under the thumb of the Roman Empire for nearly a century. And the Hebrew Bible that we call the Old Testament is full of these prophecies about a descendant of King David, 
who happens to be the author of Psalm 110. And they expected this descendant of David to be a warrior king, a political leader who would deliver Israel from their political enemies and would establish this era of God's peace. And they were sure of it. They were sure of this based on their interpretation of the, prophecy, the prophecies in, in places like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. This Davidic king in Hebrew is called the Messiah, Greek word Christos, which is where we get Jesus is not his last name. It's his title, Jesus Christ. It means the anointed one, the anointed prince, God's chosen agent to do this work. And so in the midst of that, that expectation for this Messiah, you have Jesus of Nazareth stepping into the scene as this provocative rabbi, and he's gaining popularity. And it starts to alarm the religious establishment. And so they come to him and they start to ask him questions. And they ask him questions about issues. I mean, you know us religious people, how we love to argue about issues. And they come to him and they ask him questions about issues. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Political issue. Um, what's, what's marriage going to be like in heaven or in the afterlife? A theological issue. What's the greatest commandment in the law? That's a scriptural interpretation issue. They want to talk to him about issues. And they're asking him these very tricky questions because they're, they're, they're you know how politics works. I mean, they're trying to make him look dumb. Or they're trying to get him to say something that's in error, scripturally, that they can pin on him. Or they at least are hoping that he'll say something that would maybe alienate some of his followers. And, and um, you know, sort of push away some of his constituents and maybe lessen his influence. But that doesn't happen. Each time he answers, he gives them these slam dunk answers. And finally, Jesus goes on, the, on offense. And he goes on attack with a question of his own. And we see it in Matthew chapter 22. It's also recorded in Mark 12 and also in the Gospel of Luke. But here's what we got. It says, Matthew 22, starting in verse 41. So while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they would reply, son of David, right? Based on Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They answer, he's the son of David. And they're right. They're right. But Jesus takes them in a different direction. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? And then he quotes Psalm 110. For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And what he's done is he's used their own interpretive method to challenge them. He's proved to them from the scriptures using their own method that their understanding of the Messiah was incomplete. It was inadequate. Um, David doesn't say, my son. He says, my Lord. And this whole interaction, they've been peppering Jesus with these questions, trying to box him in uh, according to their preconceptions. And he uses Psalm 110 to very definitively break out of these containers that they're sort of trying to put him in. And it's a crisis moment. It's a fork in the road, because when you start to consider it, you realize none of these other questions, like it, they, none of them matter if they have the wrong answer to Jesus' question. The questions about the issues do not matter 
if you have the wrong answer about who Jesus is. And so, you know, it's easy for us to read a passage like this um, and kind of look down our nose at the Pharisees, like as though we were not the Pharisees, <laughs> and like it's us and Jesus against the Pharisees when we read the passage. Um, but we are the Pharisees. We, we do this to God. We do this to Jesus all the time. So let me ask, what kind of box do you have God in? What are the ways in your life in which you try to contain him or control him or define him? I think there's two ways that we, that we often do this, two subtle ways, kind of tricky ways. And I do this and you do this. And these, these are usually really easy to spot in other people and extremely hard to spot in ourselves, um, which is probably just the way it is with most things. Um, but the, the first way I think people often do this to God, try and contain him and box him in, uh, is through projection. It's through projection. Now, this was the critique of a guy named Ludwig Feuerbach in the 19th century. He was a 19th century German philosopher. And he surveyed the theological landscape of continental Europe in the 19th century. And he looked around and his critique of the Christianity of that time was that God seemed to be just a bigger version of them. God was a projection. God is just a bigger version of your idealized self. God is just this abstract object upon which you project your own values, your own desires, um, your own wishes, your own dreams. And his criticism was extremely apt for 19th century Europe. Um, if you sort of look into the, the uh, theological development of what was happening in the church, this is an incredibly optimistic time where they basically believed that God had given them the revelation of religion. And he had given them a religious system and a society that would work together to just Christianize the world. And so all of the, the theological thought started to orient around our feelings and our experiences. It was all very positive and optimistic about human beings. And so Feuerbach starts to look at this and he goes, when they talk about God, it's like they're talking about themselves with a loud voice. And that was his critique. And it held out very well until uh, World War I and World War II, which sort of shattered this, this mindset in continental Europe. Um, and so his, his, his criticism was very apt for that time. It's very apt for our day too, um, especially I think in our political climate. You can turn on any cable news network, not that I recommend you do, but if you do, you will see politicians projecting. You will see politicians using the vocabulary of religion. Um, and here's what projection looks like in practice. God never disagrees with you. God never challenges you. God disapproves of all the same people you disapprove of and just as harshly. Um, and God can sort of, he, he begins to function for us when we're doing this. He begins to function for us like a card that we play just to justify ourselves and to legitimate our beliefs and our behavior. He blesses uh, our biases, doesn't he? And so when we talk about God, it starts to sound like we're really just talking about ourselves with a loud voice. It's projection, if Feuerbach is right. But here's the problem. Jesus is not a projection. He is not a projection. He's a person. Listen to what W.H. Auden says, the, the poet. 
when he's explaining why and how he came to believe in Jesus Christ, he says this, I believe because he, Jesus, fulfills none of my dreams because he is in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I had made him in my own image. Why Jesus and not Socrates or Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad? Listen to his answer. None of the others arouse all sides of my being to cry, crucify him. Jesus is not a projection. Jesus is a projectile that God fires into this world to shatter all of our projections. And so if we never find ourselves confronted by Jesus, if we never find ourselves challenged by him, if we never find ourselves corrected by him, then we would do well to stop and ask ourselves like if it's really Jesus that we're dealing with and that we're engaged with. So that's projection. The second way that we do this, the second way that we sort of contain God, boxing man, is through abstraction. Abstraction. So we depersonalize God. We depersonalize God. We don't relate to God as a person or Jesus as a person. We relate to them as something impersonal, as an idea, as an abstraction, as a topic for discussion, as uh, energy, as a force. And the reason we do this is because an impersonal God doesn't have a will. And an impersonal God is never going to make demands on me. An impersonal God does not have preferences. An impersonal God is not going to place any kind of restrictions on me. But the claims of Jesus problematize this for us because he comes in, he comes in and he says, I'm the Messiah. I am the king, the Davidic king of Psalm 110. I am God's anointed king. And more than that, I am God. And so... Um, he personalizes God in a way that's rather threatening to us when we're used to sort of regarding God as an abstraction. Listen to the way C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, Miracles. I just pulled my bookmark out and lost the page. Here we are. Okay. So C.S. Lewis on this idea of an impersonal God. Here's what he says. He says, an impersonal God, well and good, a subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads. Better still. A formless life force surging through us. A vast power which we can tap. Best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, the king, the husband. That is quite another matter. He goes on, there comes a moment when the children who've been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who've been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found him, we never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he had found us. In other words, if you've been relating to God in a depersonalized way, it's like you're playing a child's game in your heart. There's no stakes. Um, there's no consequences. Like you, you go through the motions of a, of a religious life, but you keep God at arm's length by dabbling with him. And, um, <clears throat> and at any moment, God could break in and disrupt that dynamic and disrupt that pattern. And if he does that, then it could be very sudden, it could be very startling, and he will become very shockingly 
personal. Um, and this happened for me when I was in college, as it does for a lot of folks. I mean, the, I had this experience in college where, like, the combination of my own poor decision-making, and then, which, which was the start, it started with me, and then other people's graceless reaction to my poor decision-making, um, combined to produce this guilt and shame in my life that was, that was, um, you know, it was new, it was not something I dealt with uh, at that kind of level and that intensity before. And uh, I did not know how to deal with it spiritually. It was like such a shocking and disorienting time and a dark time, and I felt abandoned by a God that I wasn't even really sure I ever knew. And so I had this moment where I was like, oh, I have to face reality. And the reality uh, was that I had a depersonalized God. And I had been a Christian all my life, all of my conscious life, and grew up in church. Uh, But in many ways, I was a 21-year-old baby Christian. Uh, And I didn't look like it. I didn't talk like it because I knew my Bible and I was at university studying theology, learning Greek, leading in three different ministries, um, but God was impersonal to me. Uh, My God was an abstraction. And the problem that I discovered is that an abstraction could not help me. An abstraction could not help me resolve the guilt that I felt for these things that I'd done that I could never justify. And so my impersonal God was useless to me. Absolutely useless. Couldn't love me. Couldn't comfort me. Couldn't help me. Couldn't forgive me. Couldn't heal me. Couldn't change me. Couldn't do anything for me. Because he was an abstraction. Because I had depersonalized him. And for the first time in my life, I was just truly desperate to know Jesus. And I knew that I needed more. I needed more than the abstraction. And so do you. You need more than an impersonal God. And you need more. Um, I mean, it's not enough to just like go through the motions of the Christian life and not know Jesus personally. It's not enough to just have like the vocabulary of Christianity and the grammar of religion to verbalize your own experiences. We need God to speak into our world. And so in that spirit, I want us to look to Psalm 110. Because Jesus said this psalm was about himself. He used it to challenge these Pharisees, and I hope that he uses it to challenge us this morning. Um, The main figure in this psalm embodies three paradoxes three sets of, um, of these seemingly contradictory characteristics. And so I want to look at what they are and then talk about how uh, Jesus fulfills them. So looking to Psalm 110, we see that this character, Jesus, is both human and divine. Both human and divine. In verses 1 and 2, it says, The Lord says to my Lord. Now, the English word Lord is used twice there, but it's two different words in Hebrew. The first one, the first Lord, is Yahweh, referring to God, the covenant name of God, I am that I am. The second Lord is the Hebrew word Adoni, not Adonai, which you recognize from Josh's talk a couple weeks ago, but Adoni, which is the singular form of Adonai, and the overwhelming majority of uses of Adoni in the Old Testament, refer to a human being. 
So David's Lord is a human being, and yet Jesus' point to the Pharisees is if this character is a human descendant of David, then David would have never called him my Lord. Never. He would have never called him my general. He would have never called him my king, my Adonai. He would have called him my son. And so we have the human and the divine. God also says to this Lord, sit at my right hand. The seating at the right hand indicates that David's Lord, Jesus, has a unique uh, privilege and a unique position uh, because human beings do not ascend to heaven to sit at the right hand of God. Angels do not sit at the right hand of God. Only someone equal with God, only someone divine, could sit at the right hand of God because he is above all angels and all earthly beings. And so that's why Jesus has this privilege. So, so we see that this character is both human and divine. And if you're a Christian person, the idea that Jesus is both human and divine is probably not something you're tripping over, right? You're like, I think I knew that. That was We covered that in the, in the intro class. Um, but let's keep going. We also see that because he is human and divine, he is equal to God, but also different from God. Equal to God, but different from God. So David's Lord is divine, equal to God, but at the same time, distinct. So look at this. In verse 2, uh, he shares equally in God's ruling power. He's at the right hand of God, and then it says, the Lord will extend your scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, the scepter is symbolic of authority, and in this case, the scepter is shared. It's God's scepter, which is then extended to the human divine king, and so it is a distinct action from one character to another. So they're distinct people. And then in verse 5, David addresses God, the first Lord, in the second person, and refers to the Messiah in the third person, saying, the Lord, uh, David's Lord, the Messiah, is at your God's right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. So we have these two discrete actors. We have the Lord, we have David's Lord, God and the Messiah, uh, the Father and the Son, equal and yet distinct. And so, so far in this psalm, we've covered some things that that you're probably expecting in a talk about Jesus. He's human and divine. He is equal to God, but also distinct. And um, Jesus claimed to be this Messiah, and the earliest Christians proclaimed him as such. And so this was Jesus' whole point to the Pharisees. The Messiah is not just a human warrior king who's going to come in to deliver you from your political enemies. He is human and divine. He's God in the flesh. Um, and so the enemies that he will conquer are not necessarily flesh and blood. He didn't just come to overthrow their geopolitical enemies. I mean, he didn't just come to overthrow Egypt or Babylon or, at this point, Rome. He came to wage this all-out, relentless war on sin and evil. But what that means, then, is that every human empire is on a road to disillusion, including ours. But there's still one more paradox to see, and it kind of demands our full attention the last thing that we see, and we see that Jesus is both human and divine. We see he's different than God and also equal to God. Jesus is a king, as we've established in the first couple of verses of this psalm. But he is also a priest. He's a king and a priest. Let's talk about this. So in verses 1 to 2, we have Jesus sitting at God's right hand, and he's been given this scepter to rule in the midst of his enemies. So he is sharing prestige with God, sharing power with God. He's sharing in God's authority, sharing in God's rule. And in verse 3, we do see that he's a warrior king. It says, your troops 
will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. In other words, he won't have to conscript anybody. He's not going to have to force anybody to fight for him. He's going to be this beloved king. People are going to be eager to follow him, eager to serve him, eager to sort of be with him. And David uses this incredible picture of dew from the morning's womb. Um, And so I think of it this way. I used to work at a golf course, and I had to get to work like real early before the sun came up. I was always the first person in there. And if I got everything set up fast enough, then I could get it done before sunrise, and I could sit, and I could watch the sunrise come up, and like the back of uh, this country club faced east. And so I could watch the sunrise come up over three different fairways that had all had the sprinklers running, had the dew and stuff, and they were wet, and I would see the glistening of the water droplets, like a billion little knights in shining armor. And that's what David is kind of drawing upon here. This king priest, he's a warrior king. He's going to lead this army into battle. And yet, he's also a priest. He's also a priest. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, to be simultaneously a king and a priest uh, in Judah was essentially impossible in David's time. Here's why. The priesthood was restricted to the descendants of Aaron and the Levites. So they were the only people who could be priests. David and his descendants could not be priests. And the kingship was restricted to David and his house. So Aaron and his descendants couldn't be king. And so because these two offices, these two roles and functions have been reserved for these two specific family lines, they don't cross over. You don't ever have one person occupying both of these roles. In fact, kings were forbidden from performing priestly functions. They didn't have any priestly prerogatives. And so you see multiple times in the Old Testament, kings getting themselves in trouble because they try and act like priests. So for example, David's predecessor, Saul, did all kinds of things that made the Lord angry. But the final straw was that he offered a burnt offering on his own without a priest. And that is the last thing before he's removed from the throne and rejected by God. Uh, King Uzziah, who is David's descendant, David's seventh great-grandson, he went into the temple alone to offer an incense offering. And the priests saw him going in there and they followed him in. And they were like, you can't do this, your grace. (laughs) Please don't. This is not your role. We have to be the ones to do this. Uzziah became angry with them, and he was stricken with leprosy on the spot and had to give away the throne uh, to his son, Jotham. And so we see that the king and the priest role are both incredibly important in uh, in ancient Israel. They're incredibly important. And... um, And at the same time, they're sort of contradictory and mutually exclusive. And nevertheless, God makes an oath with this divine uh, human king. He says he'll be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, forever the way to God. It will be you. Now, who is Melchizedek? Melchizedek is like the, he's like Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men or Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs. Like he's like barely in the movie, but he makes a huge impact. Um, so he shows up in, in Genesis 14. It's the only other Old Testament mention of Melchizedek. He shows up in Psalm 110, and he's going to show up in the New Testament a little bit. But 
Melchizedek, we're told in Genesis 14, um, Abraham meets him after defeating the king of Sodom. And Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. And he's described in the text as the king of Salem, that is Jerusalem. Uh, And Salem means peace. So he's a king, but the text also describes him as a priest of El Elyon, God the Most High. And so Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and he gives him bread and wine. Hmm. Now, some interpreters do think they insist that Melchizedek is actually Jesus Christ making a cameo in the Old Testament. I don't think that's the case. But the author of Hebrews, who, like I said, the entire book of Hebrews is based on this psalm, the author of Hebrews interprets Melchizedek as being what's called a type, sort of a forerunner, a foreshadowing uh, of Christ. Um, And so here's how this works. Melchizedek was a priest long before Aaron and the Levites. They're not going to come around until much later. He's a priest and a king all the way back in Genesis 14. And Jesus is not a descendant of Aaron. And so he doesn't come from the priestly family. Um, but he is a priest in the order that predates Aaron's order. And that's part of why Jesus is a superior priest. So here's the rub. King and priest, they're mutually exclusive. They're contradictory roles. And even if they were embodied in the same person, they have different functions. They have different functions. They're contradictory roles with contradictory purposes. And the contrast is made very clear once we jump into the the following verse. Because right after we have this priestly oath, right after God swears uh, to David's Lord, to Jesus, to the Messiah, that he'll be a priest forever in in this uh, order of Melchizedek, uh, David in the psalm begins to address God and refers to the Messiah. And it goes pretty dark. (laughs) He says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, heaping up bodies, heaping up corpses, and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. And he will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. I mean, that doesn't sound very priestly, does it? Based on everything you know about priests from the Old Testament, it doesn't sound like a priest at all. Here's the problem. The king is meant to represent God to the people. The priests are meant to represent people to God. They're, in some ways, they're opposing agendas, right? The king has to rule and judge and enforce the law and go to war and kill people. The priest serves and advocates and heals and offers sacrifices and removes sin and preserves life. And so in these two roles, we have this classic tension. I mean, the the classic tension. It's justice and mercy, right? Law and grace, Javert and Valjean. Um, And so we see see this paradox in other places in the Bible, and especially um, in one very important place, Uh, that Josh also mentioned a couple weeks ago and that I talked about the last time I was up here, but it's Exodus 34. Exodus 34. And in Exodus 34, what we have is that Moses has asked God, he wants to see God's glory. And God's like, well, here's the, if I show it to you, you'll die. And so I can't do that. So I will pass by and then you can look at the place where I just was. And that, like just the glowing spot where I used to be. I mean, that's, that's all we can do. And so he's going to, he's going to, he says to Moses, he says, I'll make, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And in this text, we're going to see this paradox, this contradiction in the very heart of God. So when the Lord reveals his glory to Moses, reveals his goodness, it says, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, and listened to the name. 
he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, I don't want to get too off track on this, but punish is kind of a weird translation here. Essentially, the idea is that sin, if it goes unchecked, it perpetuates itself generationally, okay? What you live with, you learn. What you learn, you practice. What you practice, you become. What you become has consequences. That's how this works. So Jesus is not just arbitrarily punishing kids because their parents did something wrong. He's talking about a... a um, uh, uh, a generational transfer of, um, of a destructive habit or a pattern or emotional pattern or a sin pattern, something like that. But it perpetuates through the generations. Now, getting back to the main point, did you see the contradiction in the heart of God? On one hand, he is so compassionate and gracious and so abounding in love and faithfulness that he will forgive wickedness and rebellion and sin. And yet at the same time, he is just and righteous and does not leave sin unpunished. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. And so this is the paradox of God's goodness. And unless we learn to appreciate both sides of this paradox, and unless we learn to hold them in tandem and in tension together, it'd be really hard to engage fully with the goodness of God in our lives. And so we have this issue uh, he's so good that he wants to forgive all sin and wickedness. Uh, but if he gives sin and wickedness a pass, then he's not good. Because no judge who looks at evil and says, no problem is a good judge. And all of you believe that. So at the same time, though, uh, uh, he, do he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. But if he only ever punished and was never merciful, he wouldn't be good either. So he is merciful. But how does this work? How does all of this get... Resolved. The paradox is resolved in Jesus Christ. The paradox is resolved in the priest king, in David's Lord. Here's how. Jesus resolves this contradiction in the heart of God, in his own body, in his own life, and he does it by becoming the judge who is judged in our place. He is the judge who is judged in our place. Here's what it says in Colossians 1. Paul writes this. This is, once you are alienated from God, enemies because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you through Christ's physical body, through his death, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Now you see, Jesus on one hand, he proclaims our guilt. He proclaims our guilt. He judges our guilt, but also he became our sin. And so he is at the same time, he is the judge, the just judge, the righteous judge, but he is so gracious and so compassionate uh, that he will become sin and he will place himself under God's righteous judgment. And this is how Jesus, the priest king, destroys his enemies. He reconciles us to God. He makes us friends, which is the ultimate destruction of an enemy. Um, he judges our wickedness, but then he takes the responsibility on himself to make us holy. And then when the hand that holds this scepter 
that's been extended from Zion, when this hand deals the final killing blow to sin and evil, all it does is hang there and bleed. That's our priest king. And I'd like for us to contemplate that uh, as the band comes up and as the communion servers distribute the elements. I'd like to encourage you just to take a couple silent minutes and pray. Um, and consider our priest king. Consider David's Lord, the human and divine Messiah who comes to wage war on sin and evil and in fact has done it, and that is why he is now seated at the right hand of God, awaiting the final surrender of all of his enemies when they become his footstool. Just take a couple silent moments um, just to pray and reflect and have a moment with God. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.